Wow, I almost fell asleep with that uh, incredible uh, sound effect there. The organic farm stand is about to happen. Stay tuned. We don't got our music going. What's happening here? Okay. All right. We don't have the theme music today, unfortunately, because I can't get this thing to play. Why not? Let's try it again. Not playing. All right. We'll have to wing it. And uh, your phones are not working. My headphones. Okay. So let's just um, <clears throat> figure this out. Um, hmm. Uh, Steve, you m- we might need oh, your help. No, no, the volume was down. Volume was down. Okay. Laura has mastered the uh, headphone <laughs> volume control. <laughs> That's good news. All right. So uh, my name is Richard Hill. This is the Organic Farm Stand. We're here with uh, Laura Modlin and, of course, our itinerant farmer, Steve Munno, on the phone. Steve, are you there? Yes. Glad to be here. Fantastic that you are there. And uh, we have a pretty amazing show today, uh, as we always do. <laughs> yes, it's jam packed today. I think. It's, yes, we're not we're not apologizing for our past shows anymore. No. No, this is uh, this is the way we roll here at the, at the WPKN with the Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you by the way the first and third Thursday of each month, and uh, from twelve to one. And um, we have a good show, though. Uh, I, I want to give a little thumbs up and heads up to uh, Laura Modlin for producing uh, some of the great segments we're going to have here. So um, let's talk about um, what we're going to do, and then we will proceed to do it. Laura, what do we got going on for our special guest today? Okay, well, our special guest is um, Annie... And she, excuse me. Annie Hornish, right? Hornish, yes. And she's the Connecticut State Director for the Humane Society of the United States and a former Connecticut State Representative for the 62nd District. Um, And she and her husband are owners of a certified organic farm called Evergreen Farm in Suffield. And she is on the newly formed Connecticut Coalition to Protect Bears. And she's going to be talking to us about their place in our ecosystem and um, living with them, basically. Yeah. And it's interesting because today we also have Vincent Kay, who is uh, a guy who has to deal with bears quite a bit. I bet. So I think today we're going to have the battle of the bear people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because Vincent is, you know, he's he's continually trying to figure out strategies for keeping the bears away from his beehives, which uh, may be going on now because of we had some snow, by the way, which uh, Laura Modlin arranged for us. Well, I knew you were waiting. Yeah. Well, you keep you kept talking about the fact we weren't having any snow, and and then you predicted it, and then it came. So I was like, oh my god, yeah. why did she, why did she do that? So. I'm sorry, but it's almost all gone now. It's going to be 50s today. I know. No, it was it was quick. It was painless. But uh, yeah, there it was. Four or five inches of snow, just as you ordered. Steve, how, how did the uh, snow uh, affect you out there? Uh, well, you know, first, of course, it was beautiful and, and sort hmm. of fun for my three and five-year-old to play in. So those are, you know... Uh, it's, it, we've been without it all, all winter and having a coverage over the farm is, is really 
just a pleasant and quiet and peaceful thing. And then, you know, uh, that gets broken by the joy running around outside. So, uh, we're glad to have it, you know, as I mentioned previously, it just has all these benefits that it can give us to, um, nitrogen in the field, you know, uh, the colder temperatures helping to hopefully reduce some, uh, potential pest populations, especially in a year like this, when we've had warmer conditions and we might see some things coming out earlier, you know, covering that ground with snow, having it be a bit colder, um, you know, might uh, help reduce some of the pest pressure. So, mm. um, yeah, very welcoming of the, of the snow. Um, figure, you know, there still might be more ahead for us. Uh, you know, March can bring anything. Yeah. Uh, and so can April. So, uh, but I'm, I'm glad at least we got one real covering of snow here. I know other parts of the state, you know, did have some snow earlier in the, in the winter, but particularly here in the southern part of the state, it's been pretty minimal uh, for coverage. So, and it is melting right now. I'm looking outside. I see, you know, patches of green and such. Uh, but I was glad that we had a, a real snow that we could enjoy and a snow day for the kids. Mm-hmm. What else are you confronting out there and what are your plans uh, leading up to the NOFA conference, by the way, which is uh, imminent? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, it's now, you know, it's March 2nd oops, and oops. we are um, we are starting seeds in our greenhouse. That's, you know, one of the things we always look at at the end of February for us and the beginning of, of March is starting things, uh, you know, that will plant you know, in the in the spring, the first bits of spring sowings for us: uh, onions and leeks, um, lettuce, kale, broccoli, um, some turnips and things that will go in the ground. And soon we'll start parsley and dill and cilantro. We'll get our um, first tomato seeds in soon as well. So uh, the greenhouse is fired up, and um, you know our first set of seedlings are in. So that's pretty exciting for us here. And we'll also start seedlings that we'll make available to the public as well for people's home gardens. Um, we'll, we'll offer some of those those early greens um, that people can plant in their gardens first thing. And then, you know, later in, in the spring when it's warm up, warmed up, people can uh, think about planting those warmer season crops like cucumbers and tomatoes and such. We'll have those available in May. So we're really getting that sowing schedule, you know, together and, and just starting to um, get the seeds in, in the trays. And, uh, you know, that's the kickoff of the season for us, really. Uh, or the transition from the winter things to the spring things. Yeah, uh, no, that's a great. And it's wonderful to hear that you're making seedlings available to uh, to the public. Are that, is that just for CSA, CSA members, or are that you're going to be selling those at the markets at, as well? Yeah, we'll bring it to the market. Uh, so it's not uh, specifically for CSA at all. We'll, we offer it through our sort of online store with pickup at our farm stand in our barn, and then we'll bring it to the markets. I think, you know, for those of you, whatever farmer's market you shop at, you know, as it gets to the next month or so, you'll probably start seeing seedlings. And that's a great way to help support, uh, you know, your local farm and, and producers uh, because seedlings, you know, are something that we are, are, are putting out there. And um, it's a great way to get something, you know, that's um, appropriate for your season and environment uh, and it's produced locally as opposed to, you know, coming up uh, from somewhere else in the country, the south or the west that was started earlier elsewhere and then, and then you know, brought into a bigger store. I think it's a great way to support local businesses, um, you know, buying seedlings. So, yeah, we'll start putting that out on offer probably at the end of March and, and beginning of April. So they're just getting started now. But um, 
we'll have we'll start having those first seedlings available at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. What what's uh, the status of your berry bushes on the farm there at Masaro Farm? Do you do raspberries, blueberries, currants? What, what what do you have, and what how are you preparing them for the spring? Well, strawberries are are the the one fruit that we do a lot of. So and and those are. Um, you know, pretty different in terms of management than your um, continual perennials like the raspberries and blueberries. So we keep our strawberries just for two years of production. Now, if you're a home gardener, you might have a strawberry patch that can expand and grow and you can sort of maintain that and keep that over the years. But because we grow, you know, sort of a larger quantity uh, and we want to make sure we don't end up with uh, disease issues, um, we, you know, are only going to maintain them for two years and then we, we will, um, you know, put it into cover crop and we'll have uh, strawberries planted elsewhere on the farm. So we're sort of on a longer rotation uh, of strawberries. So each year we plant some. So this year we'll harvest uh, strawberries that we planted two years ago mm-hmm. and planted last year. And then when our when our June harvest is done at the end of the month, those second year berries that we harvested, we will um, pull those out, put in a cover crop to protect the soil, and then later in the summer we'll plant uh, another batch of, of another patch of berries that will fruit in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, that style is a little different. I know a lot of growers will plant uh, their first year strawberries in April or May this year. Um, we've found that we can really wait until later in the summer, um, and we don't have to tend them all season long. Um, so it's a, it's a little different than most um, growers around here, and most gardeners are going to plant their strawberries in the spring. They might see a couple fruit this year, and then their first real fruiting is the following year. But by waiting till later in the summer, it just means it's an area we don't have to manage until you know, you know for the whole height of the season. Where do you get? Your berry, uh, that's quite a quantity you're talking about, right? Where, where do you purchase, yeah. where do you get those? Well, do about, uh, we do about 1,000 to 1,500 plants. Uh, so I know I just talked about buying all of them locally. To do that, I actually do need to get them from the south. So usually I'm getting them from North Carolina, where their growing season is a little bit different. Uh, so it allows us to get uh, those plants. And, so, and actually, the strawberries are one of the few things that we don't start on, on farm in our greenhouse. Um, strawberries yeah. and, and sweet potatoes. These are things that we'll, we, we buy in sort of already started from, uh, you know, yeah, from oftentimes the sweet potatoes might come from Tennessee uh, or Georgia and those, those plants are started in a much warmer environment and brought up here when they're ready to plant and when the, uh, you know, New England climate can handle, handle them. Um, but there are plenty of good vendors of strawberries um, in, in New England as well. And they're, they're typically ready for purchase and transplant in the spring in April and May. These are um, organic? So we, you can, organic berries are, are hard to find, and that's, why, that's, a, that's a challenge. Um, so, um, you know, we grow ours organically, but it, it's tough to find a source for that. Um, and we've, we've made some of our plants available. You know, we can dig up our own plants and pop them up, and we did that last year for our um, – celebrate spring event in May mm-hmm. uh, and sold a bunch of potted up strawberries so that they are organic, but it, it's hard to find. Um, I mean, the source you have in South Carolina, I think it's North Carolina, North South Carolina. Carolina. Are they, do they, uh, grow, we, they grow organically or yeah. do you, you have to wait a year Some, before yours become actually yeah. organic? 
Yeah, some uh, different years we've found different, uh, we've used different growers and we have found an organic grower um, and COVID kind of, you know, messed up some of their operation and they didn't offer it for a bit. So we've had both uh, organic and non-organic um, starts sent to us and then we're able, you know, because we're growing them b- before they've fruited uh, for a bit, we're able to certify them. Ah, interesting. So if even if the plant is sprouted in, you know, conventional soil preparation, uh, if you get it, if get that plant early enough and then you continue to grow it until it fruits, that fruit is considered organic. Yes, you need, you need a time. Um, and usually I think it's a, it's a year for a perennial um, stock. Um, so strawberries are a little challenged on that, but that, and that's why whenever we can get those seedlings organically, we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Laura, do you have any any thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm just wondering. We last summer, as you know, we had a big drought, but then we got a lot of rain at the end of the summer. And how did that prepare things for this summer's fruit? Um, well, it, you know, it certainly was welcome to get uh, rain finally and to have moisture, you know, and have our sort of reservoirs filled up and our groundwater filled up a little better. You know, last summer was challenging. Um, you know, I, I would like to say that I think we're in good shape going into this spring, but there's a lot of variables here. I mean, the warmth of the winter, you know, concerns me that um, plants might not have stayed dormant, mm. um, you know, might come out of dormancy earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, and flower and fruit. So we'll have to see what the next month or so brings. I mean, now that we're into March and we're, you know, we've talked about daylight these last couple of shows a little bit. You know, we've got we didn't do longer days we now. I have and, a daylight. Um, <laughs> so, I have my uh, report standing by. Okay, good, good. So, you know, that's one of the factors as well. So, you know, now that we're getting into these longer days, I, I'm sort of, I'm glad that we've had this snow and that we have some, you know, at least nighttime temperatures that are still going to be below freezing here so that our plants don't fully wake up and start to flower. And then, because again, yeah, later in March and in April, we can have, you know, a cold snap that might, um, you know, impact that, that first set of flowers particularly. Yeah. What, what, when it's warm like this, I mean, what are the challenges that are uh, increased by warm temperatures in the winter vis-a-vis pests that will assault your your growing uh, menu there on the farm? Yeah, I mean, the, the concern would be that they might come out earlier, that, you know, that, um, you know, conditions might be right for them to come out and plants that we might plant are particularly vulnerable at their youngest stages. Mm-hmm. Um, so if pests are out earlier because they've responded to whether it's warmer conditions, you know, the daylight still is going to stay. So, the, you know, uh, insects and, and birds and animals are also tuned into the daylight as well. But uh, with climate change and with things getting warmer, they might, you know, might see generations, um, like the number of generations of a particular pest increase throughout a, a year if conditions allow them to come out sooner or start sooner. Yeah. Um, so that's really where the concern gets is that um, we might see more of the pests, you know, and this is already happening for something, you know, that is not relevant to all only growers, but to everyone in the state and in the region, you know, ticks, uh, their season yeah. is expanding. So in the same way that the, the tick season is expanding because we're not having that, um, you know, cold and frost and freeze, 
And the same same could be the case with uh, particular pests that are might might uh, attack our crops. Um, so that's a concern. But we still, as growers, need to rely on you know our uh, soil management and making sure that we're putting out good plants um, that have what they need in the soil, um, so that they can be a strong, healthy plant and and fight off things like like a pest or a disease. You know, just as we need to keep ourselves healthy, uh, getting good sleep, getting good, having a good, you know, balanced diet and getting exercise. And we need to provide those conditions for plants, too. We need to have a good, healthy soil. We need to start with a good seed and seedling. We need to provide conditions for them so they can fend off whatever might uh, want to take them down. Mm-hmm. Do you, when you uh, plant your, you mentioned you move your strawberry crop from one zone to another, obviously for, I guess, the notion of, of soil ro- rotation, crop rotation. How do you choose the the new spot for that, those strawberries? Do you have to test the soils uh, each time you move, or do you just kind of do, you know, crapshoot and take take what you've got, you know, when you, when you get it? <laughs> you know yeah, deciding yeah. a crop rotation, um, there's a lot of factors to it, but... Um, you know, we our farm kind of has two two distinct areas. The way I would look at that, there's one area that's sloped a little more and gets a little better earlier sun, and then there's a flatter area. And I typically have, um, you know, year one strawberries, you know, maybe in the upper field, and year two in this sort of lower flatter field. And I'm always making sure there's one in each area, um, and so there's it helps with my rotation. Um, moving it from from one field to the other um i get a balance of conditions that way um and i'm able to move this sort of patch um you know over a period of time through uh through the farm Um, but yeah we test soil and make sure um you know we know what the nutrient profile is looking like a little bit more specifically and can um, prepare for the for the strawberries to be planted so the strawberries are going to be in the ground for a long time, you know, two years. So I want to make sure I've got a good cover crop ahead of that. I want to try to make sure there's as few weeds as possible. So I'm really wanting to have a densely grown, lush uh, cover crop in advance that we then mow down and incorporate into the soil to feed that soil. Um, so I need time. So part of that crop rotation is not just, you know, it's we're going to plant in the late summer. It's choosing not to have something before uh, those strawberries go in there, uh, not a cash crop, but a cover crop to protect and feed that soil. So there's there's a bunch of planning for it. Um, and then we make adaptations as, as we need. So um, sometimes I might have an expectation for it to go somewhere. And this year, actually, we ended up planting some of our strawberries in a, in a high tunnel because, uh, you know, the drought was impacting farms, uh, you know, in New England, but there were conditions impacting farms in the south. So uh, our we, we went through a few uh, potential vendors to find strawberry plants, and I couldn't get them till later than I normally did. Uh, normally would so usually I'd get them in August to late August or September. I couldn't get them until the end of September and October this year, which was a little too late for me to get them established where I wanted them. So we put some in a tunnel instead. So I expect we'll have a few earlier um, strawberries this year because we're growing them in one of our tunnels. Wanted to make sure they get they got established, had a chance to really um, be well rooted uh, before it got cold this year. 
So a little new adventure for us this year, and that's one of the you know ways that we need to stay flexible um, and, and respond to what's happening around us. Wonderful. And uh, Steve, we're going to mention uh, once again that the NOFA conference is, I believe, this coming weekend. That is to say, the day after tomorrow. Am I right about that? No, no, not 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 tomorrow, oh. but next next week and oh. next weekend. So oh, okay. We have there's still time to, to to sign up and to come, you know, for virtual workshops from Monday the sixth through Friday the tenth. Um, I'll be giving a workshop next uh, either Wednesday or Thursday. I'm going to have to remind myself which day that is. Um, Wednesday the eighth, I'll be talking about um, climate change and um, farmers and the food system, along with uh, another partner for that, Dr. Laney Senior, um, who runs sort of a climate school, a climate farm school. Um, so she and I will be giving a presentation. There's a number of workshops throughout next week, most of which are noon and 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then uh, on Saturday, March 11th, we're in person at Wesleyan University all day um, and, you know, award, uh, building award to, uh, to Mike Nadu and mm-hmm. a keynote speaker, Leah Penniman. Mm, fantastic. All right. Well, let's uh, welcome Vincent Kay, the proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. Vincent, are you with us? I am, Richard. Thank That's you. Fantastic. Once again, to have you. So uh, we have just been, <laughs> we've been talking about the warm weather, but on the other hand, the snow as well. We had a little bit of snow, a little bit of colder weather. How's life for you in the world of the bumble of the honeybee? Well, I, I can't complain an awful lot this year, um, this winter, that is. Um, the temperature has been warm, but not extremely, extremely warm. I've seen it warmer. Um, the one danger, um, well, of course, it, 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 you're trying to thread a needle here with, with the weather, with honeybees. Um, too cold, and of course, uh, the cluster has to be just the right size to insulate itself, to create heat. They might run out of food because they don't go dormant. Um, they're in the hives and they're eating food and that metabolism creates heat. And so um, they can easily run out of food uh, if, if the winter is too cold. On the other hand, if it's too warm, they can also run out of food because they start expanding the brood nest too early. So in other words, um, the queen is triggered her egg laying capacity or, or uh, predilection is, is, is guided by um, daylight, but also temperature. So as the, as the days get warmer and lighter, um, she expands her brood nest, which means she lays more and more eggs, but she may or may not have enough bees to incubate those eggs. They have to cluster up and sit on them, just like a chicken would sit on an egg or a bird would sit on an egg to keep them warm. The bees do the same thing. So sometimes she's lay, she lays too many eggs um, and is tricked by the weather outside. Um, and, of course, then you get a cold snap or, you know, it, it can become miserable. Um, cold, damp uh, periods during the spring, which we've had probably for the last five or six years, uh, the month of April is very tricky. Um, and so then the outer edges of her brood nest or where she's been laying eggs um, freezes and dies. So that's not a good thing. Are you there still? Yeah, we're having a little issue. Can you hang that up? Yeah. So I think you have to use the outer thing to get the dial tone. Gotcha. The outer. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, we're still learning how to use this new phone system. So <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. 
All right, Vincent, back to your uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. The, the weather is, is a factor, but um, to have it uh, really, really warm would be a nightmare right now. It would be just terrible because we know that cold weather is coming back. And um, it's, um, well, you're going to have to. Hello? Yeah, that's uh, not not working. Okay. Lori, yes. you got it together? I was suing my Okay. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. Yeah, you're good. We're having a day um, here. Go ahead. But um, other than that, um, you know, we were uh, spent the morning out in the woods uh, cutting cedar poles. Uh, we often um, have a collection of cedar poles that we go in the woods and we find uh, cedar trees that have died on their own and uh, that are still standing. And it's the perfect, perfect way to age a cedar fence post. And so we cut them and use them for our electric bear fences. And I uh, hear you have a guest coming up um, to talk about um, living with bears. And um, they're certainly quite active. Um, and um, so we, we often, um, you know, harvest these cedar poles, which um, we bring home and let dry up a little bit. But we use them instead of buying uh, wood for, for fence posts. We, we use the cedar poles and we find that they're just perfect. And when they rot out, we just get new ones out of the woods. So we spent the morning doing that, and the, of course the dogs are with us, and and uh, they, it always amazes me that the dogs will always find some dead deer carcass nearby to pull the bones back and have a, have a good chew at it. So everyone was happy this morning. <laughs> um, but uh, back to the bees. Um, yeah, the bears, um, the electric fencing works fantastic, and it's a great, great device that beekeepers have to figure into the, the the cost of operating a bee yard. Um, and, of course, the price of honey and everything that goes around with it has gone up, and, and rightfully so, because the, the electric fencing is very expensive. We figure we probably spend anywhere from two to $3,000 per bee yard on fencing. Whoa. And that's just for the startup cost um, and really doesn't incorporate all the labor, although my helper, John Gradzik, and I, both have gotten pretty good at putting up fences fast. How, how big to. is a how big is a bee yard? Well, we have one of our largest ones in Woodbridge, and uh, it's probably a hundred yards long, and probably oh thirty yards wide. Mm. And um, so we have a lot of wire. There's probably seven wires uh, on that fence, uh, spaced about six to seven inches apart. With the idea being that. You want to snap a bear, and of course, these electric fences don't hurt the bears, but it prevents them from, from getting to the bees. But you want to snap the bear on his nose and, and push him back quickly. Um, and the theory is if you are snapping him on the backside of the head, it's going to push the bear forward and, and through the fence. So that's why we have um, the wire spaced um, pretty tightly, you know, six to seven inches apart so that the bear really gets it of course, on the front of his face and is pushed back. Um, so that, that works pretty well. Um, we have pictures of bears circling these fences. We have um, cameras, uh, trail cams in some of the bee yards, so we can document the fact that these fences work. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of hilarious to watch. You know, it's, uh, you know they'll, they'll circle around and around looking for a way in, and then they just kind of grumble and, and head out, you know. Mm. It's good. Funny. Do, it's good. do they ever get in? I mean, is there, have you ever had yes, a bear? They do. Yes, they do. Um, usually they don't really get in and make a total mess before we realize what's going on. Sometimes you get a digger 
he tries to <laughs> dig underneath the fence. And um, so that will happen. And um, sometimes we'll use, um, you know, I, I know the, your, your listeners may or not, may not approve of this, but sometimes we'll use um, pieces of plywood with um, nail spikes driven through it in places where they try to dig. So we lay that down. So the bear will get a prick, you know, on his on his paw as he tries to continue to dig. So, but anyhow, it, it doesn't really hurt the bears very much. I'll tell you that now. Um, but these are these kind of tactics are used in Alaska and other areas where bears much bigger than a black bear um, will gain access to people's homes through the windows and doors. Yeah. And so, they, often the sills of the windows and door jams are lined with you know prickly nail surfaces. Uh, to keep them off, and uh, it works. It works. Uh, not all, always, but if you use a combination of things like that um, and think like a bear, you can kind of get the bear to leave the bees alone and 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 live with them. Um, you know, I will mention that. You know, as an aside, I mean, the bear problem in Connecticut, at least in this part of the state, was created by the Department of uh, Environmental Protection. This was not just a bunch of bee, uh, bears wandering down from Litchfield County because there were so many. These bears were placed here in breeding pairs in order to increase the population so they could open a hunting season. So this is totally artificially created, uh, just so that you know that as a context for the discussion. So so the, the idea was people could hunt the bears? And spend money on licenses for revenue for the state. Uh, literally, they were, th- that was, the goal was to go out and, and uh, bag a bear? This is documented, yes. Oh, my God. So, yeah. all right. So well, is, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, in a moment, we're going to have um, Annie uh, Hornish is going to be here to talk about uh, legislation to uh, sort of change the protocols for how to deal with bear populations uh, in different parts of the state. So it should be an interesting, the, I, yeah. I described it as the battle of the bear. <laughs> Battle of the yeah. Bear People, and uh, uh, I don't think I think we probably have quite a bit in common. Yeah, um, I, su- I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's one of the things that we've just had to learn, but at an expense which has never been reimbursed to us by the by anyone or the state. Um, but I mean, without um, the bear fencing and the electric units, um, which are solar paneled, uh, powered by the way, with um, a backup. Um, well, the main source is a, a marine battery. And then we have solar panels that triple charge the marine batteries. Um, so it's it's a pretty um, shocking <laughs> um, jolt, but it's um, it's not invincible. So it has to be maintained, and the wires, um, you know, are prone to tree damage when they come down in storms. And uh, it's kind of a constant uh, maintenance factor, which yeah. um, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we just didn't have that. So it's it's. It's a new expense for beekeepers in the state of Connecticut. Vincent, at what point in the in the year, well, I guess probably leading up to the actual bee harvest, uh, honey harvest, at what point do you do you get a sense of what kind of a harvest you're going to have? Well, that's a, that's actually a great question. Um, we manage the colonies for a number of different in a number of different ways to provide income for us and to keep the bees healthy. So for instance, um, we'll be renting the bees to orchards uh, for pollination. That's one part of our business in the early spring. But we have a lot of things to do to make sure that those bees are strong, the hives are good, they've got enough to eat. Sometimes the weather is just horrible when they're in the orchards. 
And then um, uh, things can go wrong in the orchards, uh, things like bears. Uh, when they're not protected by fencing, um, they're very you know, vulnerable uh, to bears tipping them over and, and, and things of this sort. So um, we do manage. We get, we get an income from that part of the business. But then we also, um, this year in particular, we're, we're going to be selling uh, bees, which are called nucleus colonies, small colonies with laying queens and a clump of bees and some brood to hobbyists and to other beekeepers who um, wish to start up beekeeping. So one of the things that happens is when the bees come back from the orchards, usually the populations are very strong and they need to be thinned out. Otherwise, they're going to swarm and that will cut down on your honey harvest getting back to your question. So we're hoping that by making these nucleus colonies, which is another source of income also, that we'll also be able to ward off the swarming of some of these hives uh, and then hopefully get a larger honey crop. Um, Because a a hive that swarms is not going to give you a honey crop. Uh, It's just (laughs) the bees are gone. And even prior to their swarming, their mood changes and they they gather much, much less nectar. So... um, in any event, um, at some point, we'll know on bee populations when they come out of the orchard. Um, a lot of that is due to weather. Um, if we have a good chunk of sun and the bees can fly, that stimulates the queen to lay more eggs. So we know at that point that the bees are going to come back very strong. And we can split the hives. We can make nucleus colonies. And we can start putting honey supers on. And then, of course, it's all weather dependent. Um, certain years, certain trees and shrubs most of the honey that we gather or the bees gather is from the woods and, and uh, wetlands and things of the sort. And um, when you have, you know, a bad weather pattern that sets in uh, rainy, cold, that kind of thing, um, the bees just can't get to it. And we've seen um, entire nectar flows or harvests totally um, jettisoned because of uh, the bad weather. I mean, the blossoms are just rotting on the trees in, in bad weather and the bees can't get to it. So, it's a crapshoot. Um, it's, um, I suppose, one of the reasons we keep doing it is that, that that maybe once in a lifetime harvest where everything kind of aligns and the stars are perfect and, you know, we can really gather a lot of honey. But we do pretty good. Um, uh, at some point, you know, the trees, especially the linden trees in this part of the uh, state, cooperate for us. It's a long bloom. And, um, uh you know, I think at one of our programs earlier, we were talking about what municipalities and people can do to help honeybees. And we were talking about planting white clover. And I will say that, you know, white clover is a huge, successful um, uh, forage for honeybees. And the more you can plant, the better. And I've seen ball fields and soccer fields last year in particular covered with white clover. And we did get uh, an increased honey uh, harvest because of that. And so even, you know, in the suburbs and in the cities, um, things can be done to really help uh, pollinators, but in particular, Hmm. uh, from my point of view, honeybees. And so, you know, plant the white clover. The red clover is great for nitrogen um, sequestration in the soil, but um, the white clover uh, is more accessible to the honeybee. Um, You'll see bumblebees on red clover. For some reason, the honeybees don't have a long enough tongue to get the nectar out of the red clover. So uh, they they just don't do it. And uh, but the white clover, they can sort of access the nectar, and, and it's actually very, um, very good for them. They have a, a long, and if, if we have the rain and, and, again, the weather cooperates, white clover will bloom, you know, right through the summer. And um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I will mention last year, I know that everyone was complaining about the drought, myself included, because they grow garlic. But, um, you know, from the bees' uh, point of view, a, a dry, sunny uh, period is actually great because they can get out and fly every day, whereas they can't in a rainy uh, period. And so um, you know, the, we did very well with the honey harvest last year, even though um, you know, a lot of other people in agriculture were suffering greatly yeah. and certainly uh, took note of that. So, yeah. All right. Well, this might be a good moment to bring in our... Annie Hornish, our special guest today. Vincent, if you want to hang with us and meet uh, your adversary in this. <laughs> everyone wants everyone to get along. <laughs> My colleague, yeah. But nothing, nothing like a good scrap on the radio. I mean, I think... Yeah, don't, don't give in to that. <laughs> so, get me going. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Laura, why don't you introduce our guest and uh, Vincent, hang out if you can. Thank you. Thank you, which I will. So Annie Hornish, um, like I said, she is on the newly formed Connecticut Coalition to Protect Bears, and um, they're working on ways to, to obviously, to protect bears, and they have um, put together a bill, and right now the Environment Committee is using bits and pieces of various bills from bear advocacy groups to create one um, and she's going to talk to us about why bears matter to our ecosystem and the problems we're having and why and the solution. Yeah, and, and maybe give, I, I, I'm not sure if any of you were listening when Vincent was talking about the bear issue and how things changed uh, by through the good, good offices of the Department of Environment, Energy and yeah. Environmental Protection. Um, you might want to comment on that as well. But anyway, thank you so much for being with us. Let's. Um, Hi, Annie. Hello. Hello. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. Um, And I want to, first of all, thank um, uh, Vincent Kay for for your comments. And I would uh, uh, not say we're adversarial at all. I think we're very much on the same page with this issue. And I want to applaud Mr. Kay's comments on, on how he has worked uh, uh, to find a humane solution to prevent uh, conflicts with bears and his bees, and also for promoting the health of pollinators across the state um, through his recommendations for planting white clover. So thank you for that. But I think you've described beautifully what works. And also, I think um, um, he's touched on an issue that we feel is important to coalition um, is finding ways to help subsidize farmers for electric fencing so that they can properly protect bees. And, and it's a win-win for everybody. The bears get to, um, you know, uh, live, frankly, um, and they bees are safe and happy. And I think it's a win-win for everybody. But I think there's a lot more the state can do um, to help farmers with, with bees. Um, so, uh, uh, but before, before we get started, I, I, I would, would like to say my husband and I uh, own an organic certified farm in Suffield, Evergreen Farm. Um, we have 56 acres uh, oh. with around 11 acres of open space, and we use about four to five acres of that of it for farming. You know, we rotate and all. Um, and prior to our getting the farm, my aunt had the property, and she farmed tobacco, corn, and hay. And as your listeners know, um, you know, the pesticides are, are used on these crops, especially tobacco. And our uh, farm's vision is to return the land to a more healthful state as an organic farm. So now we're, we are certified organic through Bay State Organics. Our main crop is kale. Uh, we also grow garlic, tomatoes, and cucumbers. 
and other vegetables. And we tried growing hemp and we're part of the state's pilot hemp program a few years back. Um, and we're still doing this part-time. We're both uh, working full-time still. So um, we hope to expand that in future years. But um, it's been a wonderful experience thus far and a great learning experience uh, living, you know, on this land and learning how to, to treat it right. But we're, we're happy to be involved, uh, be farmers now. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I, I guess I'll chat about bears a little bit. Um, bears are a hot very hot topic uh, this year at the Connecticut legislature. And what's important, I think, for people to realize is that bears are a very important part of our forest ecosystems. They eat fruit. They disperse seeds across uh, vast distances, even more seeds than birds. Um, They cause small-scale ecological disturbances to the forest canopy that allows sun to filter through to the forest floor, and that helps create greater biological diversity. Uh, They break logs when grubbing for insects, which helps in the decomposition process and also facilitates return of nutrients to the soil. Uh, They have a role in in our ecosystem. And the problem we're seeing now is we have human conflicts with bears and especially when um, bears make a habit of foraging uh, in areas where human provided food is readily available. Uh, The biggest examples are bird feeders and garbage cans. And the good news is that solutions exist. And this has been proven by um, what are called bear smart programs around the country, uh, which focus on community-based uh, education that focuses on attractant removal. And these areas of the country, other areas of the country, have far more bears and also far fewer complaints. So, yes, we're seeing more reportings of bear sightings, but sightings do not equal population. Uh, as you can imagine, a bear ambling through a human neighborhood is going to be reported multiple times. So we can't conflate sightings with population as you know, we, we hear that all the time in the media, and Deep is, is guilty of that as well. They're, they seem to be trying to conflate sightings and population, uh, and that they do that because they're trying to help um, increase public support for a bear hunt. Uh, and they've been very aggressive with their efforts in recent years to report sightings. And one example I love to give is there is a, a sign in the McLean Game Refuge in Granby, Connecticut, that asks people to report bear sightings to deep. Now, this is where bears ought to be, and they're asking people to call in sightings, but they're doing, they're kind of going to extreme measures to get people to report instead of focusing on what people can do to help reduce bear conflicts. Could you, could you actually amplify a little bit about that idea that deep is encouraging uh, the, the possibility of a bear hunt? I'm not sure if, if hunting bears is, is now legal in Connecticut. Could you? It, hunting bears um, uh, is not legal uh, in Connecticut. Um, they, uh, there has been, uh, there's only, you know, the deep commissioner can kill a bear if there is a public health or safety threat. That's, that's law. Um, but the laws um, have been clear enough in past years um, to, you know, prosecute people for poaching bears. And the laws have also allowed deep to allow farmers under limited circumstances to kill bears. And we have, there's evidence of this, that the office of legislative research 
has done three reports, the earliest back in 2009, the latest in 2022, that all attest to this fact, um, that bears cannot be hunted and that farmers can have recourse or if there's a situation where there's a public health or safety threat uh, when bears can be taken. But it, it is illegal to uh, to hunt bears right now. And DEEP has been promoting a bear hunt since 2013, and that's before they even knew the bear population. And and the bear population is not as high as, you know, we don't know the bear population, but in 2014, that was when the last study was done to estimate the bear population. And that study found only 235 bears in the northwest corner of Connecticut, and that it was a Yukon study, and they um, projected that uh, there were approximately 400 adult bears statewide at that time. And the population of bears has not been studied since. What we are seeing is more reportings of sightings and um, in some in conflicts as well. And that's what that's the problem we are seeing right now. And yeah, yeah I, we wanted to get to what I think is some proposed legislation uh, on mm-hmm. the issue of, of bear management. Can you talk us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, on Tuesday of this week, actually, the language of the bill came out. It's a committee bill. It's House Bill 1148, 1148. And um, we're going to be standing in opposition to this bill. Uh, it contains a bear hunting lottery uh, for the killing of 50 bears. And it also has some other provisions within it um, that we disagree with. One, uh, it's not well written, frankly. The way it reads right now is it would it would actually make illegal the feeding of dogs and cats. They don't have uh, exemptions for domesticated dogs or cats, and they're saying you can't kill Feely Day or Canada Day. So it's not really a well-written uh, bill. Um, the bill we wanted was um, uh, 5160, House Bill 5160, and we're still going to be promoting the concepts within that bill. What we would like to see is a um, three-pronged way to address the the complaints about bears in Connecticut. The first part would be a feeding ban that would include uh, unintentional feeding, of course, and unintentional feeding of wildlife. The unintentional um, feeding of wildlife is modeled after an ordinance passed in Simsbury, Connecticut, that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bird feeder. You know, bird feeders are the big uh, problem. And, and we ask that people take bird feeders down from March through November. And that may change with you know, uh, climate change with the warming, but right now it's March through November. And um, that's one component of the bill. The second component we're asking for is a million dollar grant program uh, to reduce uh, bear complaints. And that's based on a Colorado grant program. And that would, um, uh, uh, it's a community grant program and it would, you know, be used, funds would be used for um, non-lethal strategies. Uh, to prevent conflicts. And if, for example, a community could, a municipality could apply for a grant to subsidize bear proof garbage cans in a north, in one of the towns in the, in the northwest part of the state, perhaps. Uh, a grant to help municipalities uh, reduce food waste, which is a huge issue uh, across the entire state right now. Um, electric fencing, uh, like I already mentioned, to help subsidize uh, farmers uh, for to protect livestock, including bees. Um, another uh, thing that could be it could be used for is to apply um, for 
a more robust public education on what people can do to keep bears out of human neighborhoods. Uh, and the third part of the bill uh, that we'd like to see is requiring that deep uh, promulgate regulations to manage orphaned bear cubs humanely. And this issue came up um, after the killing of Bobby the bear in Newtown, um, where Deep was poised to let her two cubs die. Uh, they were only 11 and 13 pounds. And it was only because uh, I was in the woods that w- with the cubs and along with other, other groups. And they were ready to let those cubs die. And it was only because we reached out to animal-friendly lawmakers and made a lot of noise that we were able to get those cubs out to a rehabilitation facility in New Hampshire. And that's something we think most of the people um, uh, would uh, prefer happen to orphaned cubs is that they be the cubs of the year. You know, if they're, if they're having gained enough weight and they don't have foraging skills where they could survive, um, they, we should take care of them, especially when they're uh, inappropriately poached with, with when their mother's inappropriately mm. killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yep. yeah, that's quite quite a uh, uh, an evocative uh, little story you told there. But uh, do, mm-hmm. do, do you have more? Or should I ask maybe uh, get some questions from perhaps Vincent, uh, Steve or or Laura? Vincent, uh, do you want to chime in? And you still the sure. Um, no, I think the um, again, I think the populations are, are at the present being managed artificially. Uh, these bears didn't just wander down because of overpopulations in some other area where you could understand the kind of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, I guess the, the rise in sightings, the rise in populations. These are, these are bears that are placed with specific intent to breed and become problems. And uh, again, this is known, um, a known strategy uh, by the DEP or DEP, whatever, however, they use the acronym now, but it's, um, uh, I would like to see, uh, you know, we, we in particular, there's not a lot of us in the state uh, that are trying to make a living with, with honeybees, but one of the big issues is money. <laughs> I mean, we've put out a huge amount of money um, with these fences, and they do need maintenance, um, battery replacement, stuff like this. And it would be wonderful to get, first of all, reimbursed for some of these expenses, which we didn't ask to have to do. But we did them um, because no one wants to euthanize a bear, whether it's legal or not. Um, you know, you're trying to sell a jar of honey. If that sort of becomes your trademark, I don't think you'll sell a whole lot of uh, poo bear jars of honey. You know, it's just not going <laughs> to fly in the, in the public realm. So um, no one wants to do that. We're just trying to make a living with our honeybees. But we certainly would, wouldn't mind. You know, the fencing unit with the battery runs about uh, anywhere from six to $800 right now. And that doesn't include the wire, which sometimes we're running on a particularly large fence, a quarter of a mile, even a half a mile of wire. Um, we've got grounding rods, uh, copper stakes that are driven into the ground for ground. Um, and again, it's, it's just a constant maintenance issue. And were there to have grants, I mean, we would love to be able to apply for a grant because, um, you know, we, we're definitely um, in need of that. And we, you know, we cannot keep bees in most locations um, because basically every every location we have now has a fence except the uh, locations closer to the cities. Um, but that might change as well. So who knows? Annie, why don't you, we're, we're actually running short on time, so I want you to sure. re, uh, re, 
or underscore your the legislation that you're you're promoting that you've uh, outlined for us and mention uh, anything that uh, the public can do to chime in in terms of the, the supporting that. Sure. Um, yes, the, 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 I mentioned the three-pronged approach, the feeding ban, a grant program, and requiring humane management of cubs. That's what we're supporting. The existing bill um, is, is not good, and it needs to be opposed by the public. Um, it has three, a couple components. One of it would allow uh, the taking of all wild, any wildlife that's doing damage to, for example, even um, hobby backyard chickens and backyard uh, beekeepers. And it's written with very vague language, like if an animal is threatening you, um, to allow the killing of that wildlife. And it's, it, uh, they use terms like uh, you, if you utilize reasonable non-lethal efforts without defining what, those, that what, um, un, what reasonable means. So that part's vague. There's another section that opens up the bear hunt, which we know does not work. And um, I'll get into that in one moment. And then finally, um, yeah, I mentioned the dog and cat. It's, it's worded in a way that would actually make illegal the feeding of dogs and cats. That, that's, um, you know, not um, obviously not <laughs> going to be accepted. Um, I want to stress that hunting isn't the solution. And this is per the science uh, researchers in other states have found that hunts don't eliminate nuisance complaints because bears killed in the woods aren't the same bears who people complain about in the more developed areas where hunting wouldn't even be safe. And they show, these studies show that human-bear conflicts are closely associated with food availability. It's all about the food. And a very recent study in 2022 found that hunting might even increase human-bear um, interactions. And if you think about it, it's, it's counterproductive to kill bears in their natural habitat when they're eating native foods far from human neighborhoods, as hunting would do. And they're also teaching their cubs to do the same. So we're just going to simply add to the list of orphan bear cubs. And it's not what the people you know, of Connecticut want. And the, I, I do want to um, echo the, the um, you know, we're in strong support of helping subsidized farmers. Towns right now seem to be awash in um, funding from like ARPA funds. A lot of money is getting freed up in local towns and in the state. And there, I would say this is a good time, a reasonable time to be asking for a grant program that can help subsidize farmers with electric fencing. And we would, the coalition would back that very strongly and Annie, work with small local farmers. Yeah. In our last seconds, just mentioned the, the name of the, the number of that bill that you're supporting. Sure. The, uh, well, it's, it, the bill isn't filed. We're opposing uh, House Bill 1148 in its entirety, and we're supporting what was what we sent to the committee, which was under 5160. How do people contact you? People can contact me at ahornish at humanesociety.org. A-H-O-R-N-I-S-H. Thank you very much, everybody. This has been the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill with Laura Modlin and Steve Mono. This is the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. As found in the publication Gothamist, the owner of the defunct Indian Point nuclear facility says it's planning to dump about one million gallons of radioactive water into the Hudson River. The move, which the company describes as the best option for the waste, could happen as early as August. 
A February 2nd meeting of the Indian Point Decommissioning Oversight Board heated up when the plant's owner, Holtec International, disclosed the plan as part of its lengthy closure process. Environmental groups and residents are also concerned this could harm their community, as the Hudson River is already a federally designated toxic Superfund site, and the contaminated water could just naturally and safely decay in storage on site. According to new research published in the journal Nature, scientists revealed that while the pace of melting underneath much of the Thwaites Glacier ice shelf is melting slower than previously thought, deep cracks and staircase formations in the ice are melting much faster. Known as Antarctica's Doomsday Glacier, nicknamed because its collapse could drive catastrophic sea level rise, is roughly the size of Florida and is located in West Antarctica. Part of what holds it in place is an ice shelf that juts out into the surface of the ocean. The shelf acts like a cork, holding the glacier back on the land and providing an important defense against sea level rise. But the crucial ice shelf is highly vulnerable as the ocean warms. Meanwhile, the area of sea ice around Antarctica has hit a record low, with scientists reporting never having seen such an extreme situation before. The ice extent is expected to shrink even further before this year's summer melting season ends. Researchers say the continental shelf, an area the size of Germany, is now completely ice-free. They said it is troubling to consider how quickly this change has taken place. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned this week that some of the world's busiest and biggest cities, including New York, Cairo, Mumbai, Jakarta, Shanghai, Copenhagen, London, Bangkok, Buenos Aires, Lagos, and Los Angeles, are at risk of being flooded if global temperatures continue to creep up and cause further sea level rise. The Secretary of the U.N. warned we could witness a mass exodus of entire populations on a biblical scale. We would see ever fiercer competition for fresh water, land, and other resources. Reuters reported unusually low tides and drought conditions in Italy have resulted in the canals of its famously watery city, Venice, almost drying up. A series of images of the city last week shows some smaller channels with just a trickle of water grounding the city's famous gondolas and water taxis and newly exposing the foundations of buildings. The Department of Energy will offer $74 million to geothermal pilot projects that tap into heat several miles underground in a bid to unlock massive amounts of renewable electricity. The funding announced last week will go to up to seven pilot projects. Funding recipients will test whether a new kind of geothermal technology called EGS, or Enhanced Geothermal Systems, could be an economic way to transform heat almost anywhere on the planet into electricity. According to the publication Electec, less than a year after announcing plans for a renewable solar energy product in California, the EV charging network Electrify America has officially broken ground on the site called Solar Glow One. At peak solar capacity, the project is expected to generate 75 megawatts and provide even more renewable energy to EVs on an annual basis. 
And finally, according to a new report from Bloomberg NEF, global investment in low-carbon energy technology surged to a record level of $1.1 trillion in 2022. The biggest share of spending went towards renewable energy and electrified transport. But worldwide annual investment needs to be three times higher to put the world on track to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. This was the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at M A T E 